This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is Dr. Jonathan Abel, Associate Professor of Military History at CGSC DMH. We are here with Associate Professor Dr. Jeremy Maxwell. Hello. And we are also here with Assistant Professor Dr. Angela Riotto. Howdy. And today we're going to talk about one of the areas in which Dr. Maxwell specializes, which is the racial integration of the U.S. Army in the mid-20th century, so late 1940s and on. Um, so, Dr. Maxwell, let's go ahead and start by asking the very simple and perhaps obvious question. Why is the U.S. military, and specifically we're talking about the Army, segregated going into the 1940s? Well, it's, it's, uh, I usually, when I give a lecture or teach that, I see that as a integration as a three-part process, and, and that being initially gaining representation in the military to start with because, of course, um, throughout American history, um, African Americans have been um, treated as part of citizens or second-class citizens or not gaining access into the traditional institutions that should be afforded them under the Constitution. Um, so I see it as gaining entry into the Army um, and gaining sustained presence in the Army because, as we know, prior to um, the 20th century, African-Americans are actually present in all U.S. wars, maybe part of the war with Mexico. However, um, they are usually the ones that are then let go. As Mustered as, out, right. right, right. Yeah. So it's it's very much a at the needs of the, the U.S. military. And, and at the risk of being kind of crass, we're essentially talking about cannon fodder, right? In a lot of ways, or in, or, or in some cases it's more labor. Yeah. So... so Along the lines of the prevailing um, issues at the time, they would have been seen as not competent to understand the rigors of military service or what their civil service of the country would be. Um, And historically then that has relegated them to uh, expendable jobs, but then more importantly as we progress through history, um, service jobs. Okay, so we we have two kind of pre-20th century problems, it sounds like, then. We have, one, the cultural problem, which sees the black American as lesser, of lesser intelligence, of lesser ability, or in the case of certain parts of the country, not a person, right? Right. And then we have the institutional problem of a military that does not seem interested in allowing black Americans to serve, except as kind of the lowest common denominator, if that makes sense. If at all, at the start, yeah. Yeah. Um, There is still a lot of hesitancy uh, pre-20th century by, and indeed in the first part of the 20th century, by um, old timers, if you will, or traditional um, people that, that the prevailing attitude at the time suggests that African Americans did not possess the mental acuity to understand the rigors of combat or however you want to case that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where you have um, 
what's a phrenology, right? Like this idea that even their brains were shaped differently, which right. allowed them not to possess this mental acuity. The interesting thing is, is um, all surveys indicate in every uh, war that records exist show that once whites and blacks serve together, that um, there's this realization that uh, maybe we're wrong here. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really actually translate into relative change until you know, the 1940s, 19, actually 1954. So if I'm remembering correctly, the, the famous story of Teddy Roosevelt's assault on San Juan Hill, yes. the major unit doing that was a black unit, it was, correct? Yeah, it was your 25th, your, your Buffalo Soldiers. Um, um, and, you know, more to the point there, Teddy Roosevelt's an interesting character within the scope of military history because anyway, he is um, very pointed about a pecking order he sees as um, where different races lie. In fact, I think he probably put Japanese at the time higher than any other races. Um, now, that didn't mean that they were equal to whites in that case, but in his mind, because of the ingenuity that they showed in uh, progressing past the Meiji Restoration, you know, during that period, uh, he was he was enamored with how fast they did that, which is a pretty stereotypical patrician gilded age ideology, it is. right? It this is. kind of this kind of stacking of people yeah. and races and, and genes, and as they would have as they would have thought. And I think to some extent, the idea that it is incumbent upon himself and other high standing whites to inform lower classes of people on how to do things, just as we know, like in. Uh, World War One, the whole idea of uh, the U.S. going to war to uh, inform the world on how to be moral, right? Right, right. Um, so, Dr. Maxwell, can you talk to us a little bit about how some of these individuals, white individuals especially, reconciled with the fact that they are seeing African Americans prove themselves on the battlefield, but then coming out of that war and saying they're still going to remain out of the military, or if they are in the military, they're going to be in segregated units. How do they reconcile that? the actual reality and then their cultural social beliefs. Um, in a lot of ways, that's a in-service and out-of-service issue, right? I mean, the in-service, it, it becomes apparently clear to them that this person exists just like they do to help each other survive this arena of war, right? But most um, pre, say, 1960s, actually probably pre-1968, say that um, depending on where they live within the states, where they hailed from, that um, that basically has an impact on when they get home. Uh, they stipulate the fact that it was a great experience, that they trusted African Americans during their service, um, made great friendships, but were very emphatic in the fact that they just knew that when they went back to their home areas that that was not allowable or not PC in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and one of the points you bring up that I think is, is important here is, you know, across the board, America is a racist and a racialized place, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. But there are areas of the country that are more segregated, more racialized, the, the, the American South, of course, rural spaces everywhere. Sure. And, and the military is a mixing society, but then you have to go back home. Right. And so I think I think one of the stories that we'll see is that you you know, within the service as you mentioned, there there is a, less of a maintenance of social barriers as compared to before or after. Right. And and I do think that um right, I mean, the military while traditionally has always claimed that it's not the institution for social change has been just that, right? 
Um, indeed, w when we're talking here about uh, integration, I mean, while be it slow in the military, it does actually precede things like um, opening up the schools that Eisenhower does in 54, right? I mean, um, mm -hmm. generally speaking, um, final the final whack, if you will, to integration happens in the Far East Asian theater, right? So it is in Korea, and then systematically it works its way back home. So, so it's tried and tested in Korea, then it moves to the European theater, and then it moves back home. Mm -hmm. So you, you've said that there's this first stage of just simply gaining access to the military, right. right? So how is that first stage achieved, presumably in the early 20th century? How do, we, how do we get over the barrier of just not having many black Americans in the military? Uh, well, a lot of that's through um, civil war service, which again is not so. So I, I touch on issues like this in my research as background to the greater period I discuss. I have to admit I'm not exactly the expert in Civil War history, um, but what largely happens at, at the outset of that is discussion about this issue of them being mustered out, right? So we get the Army Reorganization Act that affords a permanent place for African Americans in the military with the establishment of those Buffalo Soldier regiments, um, um, and I believe 1876, roughly like that. So. Um, and these are segregated units. But they are. It's actually earlier, but the thing is it's segregated and they have to have white officers. So even right. as they're having these segregated units, they're recognizing that while African Americans might be able to fight, they may not be able to lead. Right, right. There's always some, interesting, there's always this kind of duality between them not possessing the ability to lead or, or withstand the rigors of combat, yet in most of the literature as we go further forward throughout history, they are then going to be on the opposite side of the thing where they make the best combat troops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that service with African Americans or service as a officer commanding African Americans is equated with experience in places like Haiti or in the, you know, places where people are darker complected and, and that magically that would afford you the understanding of how to um, know the complexities of African-American culture. So it, it almost sounds like even within the U.S. Army, there's a sense of colonialism. There's a white man's burden. I think so. I think that's accurate. That's interesting. So so we're moving forward now. We've got, we do have segregated units, right? You mentioned these Buffalo Soldier units are, are stationed across the American West. Um, and, and we're moving into the 20th century now. Now we're going to hit the age of mass conscription for the World Wars. Sure. So how do how do World War One and and going into World War Two how do those two wars change black participation in the military in the army? I, I would say that actually has to walk back a little bit farther to the Spanish American War because what you get is Af the African American civil leadership pretty much recognizing um, what I was kind of trying to walk forward there before that that service in the military right you have kind of two camps you have the W.B. Du Bois camp that is much along the lines of um, Frederick Douglass that, that champions service in the military as a path forward to rights that they should enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have another camp that, you know, you like the Booker T. Washington and the Taliban 10th, right, that only the certain top 10% should, should, should be pushing this forward, right? Um, a lot of that is recognition by African-American leadership that um, National Guard units are the avenue to more permanent service in the regular army. And the reason why that is, which is kind of commonly overlooked, is because 
National Guard units must be maintained by the state, and that's a, that's a voted-on issue. So whether or not people understand what they're doing or not, it's a tacit acceptance of the fact that they are going to house, train, and feed African-American troops. And when you need a massive call-up like World War I, then these units can find a funnel to the front. Now, now that takes its ups and downs, too. I mean, that you have... Um, 92nd and 93rd who have largely different experiences. One languishes in the West and is hoping to get to the war because the whole idea is right to prove themselves in combat. Mm -hmm. um, and even um, those that get to go have fantastic service. Actually, they're the longest serving frontline units for the U.S. in World War One. The difference is, is that they were farmed out. The AEF farmed them out to the French, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was an easy way for Pershing and Wilson to sidestep the issue at the time, and um, they basically just um, served very honorably. One, uh, I forgive my, you can correct me on this, but the French Medal of Honor, mm -hmm. Croix de Guerre or something. Croix de Guerre. Right, okay, sorry. And, um, and um, multiple individual citations and indeed the unit citation. Mm -hmm. um, That's for the, the Harlem Hellfighters? Yeah, or Rattlers as their actual technical right, right. branches. And then... Um, but, you know, again, then that can be massaged away when they come home because it's service not for the U.S. Right, and that's the, that's the great dodge. We tend to forget Wilson was a Southerner. We, we associate him with New Jersey. But that's the great dodge, the committed, you know, social Darwinist Wilson has, which is, yes, these black soldiers serve, but they serve France. Right, and, and yeah, you, as you mentioned, that's kind of the massage away the issue that most people like to overlook, that while at the same time, America is claiming that, uh, indeed, the whole entrance into World War I is so American exceptionalism, so we can present, or the U.S. can present at the time, um, or inform the rest of the world on the issues of morality, when indeed that's a very tenuous Yeah, just don't look here. at what we're doing back home. Right, and, yeah. and, and that theme largely follows through, and indeed then can be a tool for enemy psyops throughout the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, you mentioned about... Um, these forces being given over to French units, French commanders. Another way we don't, the U.S. doesn't really have to deal with them. But is another reason is that the French also have their own black colonials working with them, and they may have thought that the French commanders would know how to better deal with people of color rather than. I think American. you could. I think you could make that assertion. Um, I'm a little bit more pessimistic in the fact that I think it was a sidestep. Um, however. Um, as you know, I mean, French colonial, colonialism, I mean, they have been interacting with people of African descent for much longer. Um, it is not as big of an issue, or at least not a reported as big an issue, like at, at the front, like they've been integrating forces. Um, certainly, especially with their kind of legion type things, I mean, it, I mean mm -hmm. they've had taken people from all over. And um, um, I don't think it was an issue. So I think really... Um, while that assumption can be made, I, I think we have to be really fair and, and think that this is an easy way out for the Wilson and Pershing leadership. Do we see anything similar? I'm jumping ahead a little bit, forgive me. Anything similar um, in World War II where they're trying to sidestep the inclusion of black troops in the military by giving them to maybe the Pacific theater rather than the European theater or lending them out to other countries? Um, the World War II is a different animal, I think. Um, I don't know pretty much about the whole... So the only hard and fast example I can give with respect to um, 
farming out to other areas. I mean, as part of the U.S. forces, they obviously traveled throughout. So the big issue would have been Australia, right? Service in Australia, where they met with unhappy. Uh, because welcomes. of the Aboriginal tensions. Uh, yeah, and I think we have to remember with respect to that that in Australia. I mean, not to you know be speaking ill of anybody, but they had the white only policy for longer than mm-hmm. anybody, right? Mm-hmm. And then also you. Um, uh, a lot of African Americans are were um, relegated to Northern Ireland, actually Northern Ireland bases, to free up British units to go to the front. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and you're getting at something you brought up earlier, which is okay. We have now, I think it's, it's fair to say, decisively crossed the barrier of excluding Black Americans from the military. But what we've now done is we've just shifted to another form of segregation and oppression, which is to say. Okay, we'll let we'll let some of you be in segregated combat units, but most of you are going to drive trucks and work in kitchens and do service type jobs, which is which is kind of a, a shift, I think. Right, and there's kind of two things involved in that because it's it's not only the fact that they're relegated to these um, service type jobs, not combat roles, right? Um, it's also the fact that. Um, for lack of a better way to say it, um, they are now tools of the American empire. So in the, in the scholarship, that becomes kind of hinky, if you will, right? Because, um, and, and again, adds to the literature in the sense that they now, why, so the, the question becomes, why are we tools of the American empire that doesn't allow us to maintain full citizenship or that, that we should be afforded? In a war, ostensibly fought for freedom. Right. Yeah, right. which which is a natural kind of, of push into, you mentioned there there are concerted efforts to use the military as a lever of social change. Yeah. Um, and if I remember correctly, this is where we get the double V campaign, right? right? Where yeah. there's a push at home for civil rights, right. uh, leveraging the war and the fact that there are lots of black people serving well and honorably in the American military. So you could talk a little bit about kind of that duality. Um, yeah, I mean, you still are, African Americans are still met with heavy trouble at home um, in terms of, so we, as we know that there's a massive, I mean, the whole of society is transformed for the World War II effort, factories, um, we have a lot of African Americans moving north to fill these roles. Um, and, Great migration. Right, and met with uh, significant resistance in a lot of cases. Um, you have at the same time, so there's a couple things that happen at once, right? So in the scope of World War II, that is probably the definitive point where you see uh, a move towards change, um, albeit uh, modest. So the bigger issue, say, in the Marine Corps would be the fact that now African Americans are afforded a place in the Marine Corps, which hadn't happened since um, 1798, I think so, since Adams basically outlawed it. and that brought up a whole segregated camp. And, and that brings up whole other issues too because here at an army institution, it's largely different than the Marines, which have always been a historically smaller force. So a lot of their forcing functions come down to perhaps not necessarily a progressive outlook, but more a function of they can't maintain separate facilities. Um, which is why throughout time you will see the Marine Corps integrate. Like they go to Korea integrated. The army doesn't really do integration until 54. 
And it's also to fair to pause and say this is the era of Jim Crow, right? Where yes. in America, especially the American South, but across America, there are physically segregated and separated spaces sure. for white and non-white people. So the military, what you're saying is the Army maintains that because it's huge, but yeah. the, the Marines don't necessarily have the money or space to do that. Right, and, and I think, so we have a different couple of issues here. So the military does look appealing to African Americans for a number of reasons, and those are varying from steady jobs, right, and medical benefits and things of that nature to um, getting out of the local areas that they have um, been oppressed in, right, right. to um, sometimes um, they just like the the uniform and just like any any other person joining the military there's there's patriotic reasons there's uh very visceral visual visions of, of why and adventure yeah adventure um um get out of boring hometown or or oppressive hometown yeah. in some yeah. cases right um and the other issue with world war ii is is that most of the training grounds are in the south which isn't really conducive to including african-americans in the system right so you're basically in essence putting them in jail because they can't go into local areas outside, right? That might be a harsh way to term that. Well, no, and I think it's worth pointing out, too, it's not as if, as you say, that the military is being progressive in this and fighting this. By and large, as I understand it, not only did the military uh, not fight these kind of segregated rules, they, they actively worked with the local authorities to enforce them. Right. Um, and indeed, I mean, after the war, you know, George Marshall will say one of the biggest errors we made was having so many bases in the South, and it just was not conducive to facilitating this change. Now, the, the other big issue with World War II, right, is of course we start seeing integration towards the end of the war at the company level with the fifth platoons that Eisenhower signs into effect, right? Um, probably largely unknown. So you have two things. You have Montfort Point Marines, and then you have um, African Americans being able to volunteer for a service in the infantry before the bulge, right? Um, and so it, so it is a very pivotal point because while you can't claim that this is actual integration, um, it, it at some level it is and it's the predecessor for, or it, it kind of predates these major army surveys about, or DOD surveys about uh, what what is termed the utilization at the time of Negro manpower, right? That's the title of the survey, um, which emphatically states and shows by all the interviews that everybody thought that African Americans performed with valor. Okay. So is this because you said the term utilization earlier said tool? Right. Are the fifth platoons Monmouth Marines? Are these because of necessity? They're going into a, a huge offensive and they need men. Is that why they are integrating slowly the military, or is this more of an altruistic thing on Eisenhower and Marshall's behalf that the military should be integrated? With respect to the Army, it is wholeheartedly a fact of need towards the end of the war. With the Marine Corps, it is um, more down to the fact that Roosevelt issues the executive order that basically bans discrimination within uh, government organizations, which includes the military, right? So um, Commandant Holcomb at the time of the Marine Corps emphatically got up and stated that uh, his true intentions and the fact that uh, I believe somewhere along the lines of uh, the African-American or the, in the vernacular of the time has the option to seek service in the Army and the Navy at the time, I think for them to enter into the Marine Corps is would, would just basically be problematic. Basically, go, go serve where you're wanted. 
basically. I mean, he he was not hesitant about his beliefs, but being an executive order, he had to accommodate it. And then, of course, the director of plans and policies just you know facilitates it. And then we get the segregated camp, um, which of course will then be um, done away with later on in when Truman orders executive order nine nine eight one, right? Because yeah. at least on paper, he will. Um, integrate or desegregate the forces, right? No, no, that's a perfect segue. So with Executive Order 9981, how does that happen and how does racial integration manifest in U.S. forces abroad and especially in the state, especially with the, the pushback um, you, you just recently explained? So I think Truman, um, you know, he he was, he makes a comment that I didn't know, know things were so bad in response to African-American troops being lynched when they come back home. So they've served their country and tried to further perhaps the cause for African Americans or just served for themselves valiantly and then um, were met with resistance at home, sometimes very violent. Why are you wearing the uniform of a Marine or a soldier or whatever, what have you, right? And many of them had been in countries where there is no segregation and right. less racism. I'm not going to say no racism. So they come back to a place after experiencing life in a different way. Sure. So they certainly... Are, are looking as veterans, as our black communities in America, are looking to leverage this service for progress. And, and apparently Truman is seeing that this doesn't work. Is that what, I'm, is that what you're saying? Well, he, he was shocked to, I don't know if that's just a general apathy towards reading what's around him, or you know, he obviously had other issues. Um, but at the same time, he's, he's saying, I didn't know it was this bad still. And, um, at the behest of listening to a lot of the African-American leadership at the time, we get uh, Executive Order 9981. And the problem with that is, is it looks great on paper, but that's effectively all it is when it's issued because your service chiefs basically look at that as um, guidelines, not as a mandate. So let's dig into this a little deeper. Uh, this is an era of great change, right, between yes. 1945 and 1950. Um, the, the Executive Order is issued in... 1948. 48. So it's the year after the National Security Act, right. and the, the you know the government is essentially changing wholesale right. to fight the Cold War. Right. So to bring us back to the thread we had from earlier, Truman issues this executive order ordering the integration of the military. Um, and I believe that it include the entire federal government in that. Um, I, b I believe it's more respective to the military. Okay, so we're integrating Whereas, the military. Yeah. And, and it's part of this huge spectrum of transforming the United States to fight the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So is this just another forcing function where Truman has to integrate the military in order to position the U.S. to fight the Soviet Union? Or do you read genuine altruism into the issuing of the order? I, I think um, both, both, if that's okay to say. Um, that's all right. I think that um, Truman can be read both ways. I mean, he... he he came from a background that was probably like realistically largely segregated. I mean, he, a lot of books present him as semi, you know, he is a progressive, but at the same time, um, he was known to make uh, very colorful comments as well that would not today be seen as BC, right? Yeah, and that's progressive with a capital P, right? We're not talking about kind of the modern generic, right. you know, left of center progressive. We're talking about the early 20th century capital P progressive, which includes Teddy Roosevelt. Right. Um, but he, I think he is genuine in the sense that at this time it's it's time to force change. But what he's met with is, is I think the order is very unclear to 
on purpose. So it comes off as guidelines to its surface, Chief. What it does, right, is it enacts certain things, but it has no um, legal power behind it. So in theory, services are supposed to integrate. And again, remember, this is we have the creation of the Air Force at the same time, right? So mm -hmm. service. Um, but there is no legal repercussions for not doing it. And you have very entrenched people like uh, Royal, uh, uh, the Army, right, that, that just have no issues in doing it. So you have Lewis Johnson at the time, who is the uh, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of War, right? He is very much um, emphatically progressive in that sense, you right? So he's got a couple mandates. He's got, a, he's got one to slash the military. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, he is the guy that mothballs the World War II Army, right? And then on top of it, you have, uh, and then he also has to force this issue. And then we get um, things like the Fahy Committee as a result, which is the forcing function, if you will. It's basically uh, the committee that highlights the fact that you're not doing what this order says. We need a date by when you think this is going to happen and a plan to get there. To all the service and so this right? this Fahi committee is this uh, is this Department of Defense is it congressional president's committee okay yeah on equality so it's um, an executive branch it and, it, and it'll later be reorganized under Kennedy but um, but it is and it's, it very much is looking at the issue of forcing this executive order um, and so what you get is again the Marine Corps being a small branch they are able to go to well, there's a lot of issues, right? Because in the, in the pre-Cold War era right now, you have uh, the Marine Corps pretty much on the chopping block, right? And fighting for its survival as a service. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they are able to orga organize the 1st Marine Division very quickly to go to Korea and they go over integrated um, is, is a huge thing. Um, whereas the Army is a much bigger institution and it... Even when, even when it happens, even when this, there's a, a date set for this happening, you have a host of personalities that still are wanting to fight this. Biggest one I can think of is, of course, uh, General Almond. Um, he emphatically throughout the war, I mean, the, the whole point that I try and make in my research, right, so in Korea, they just find by rigors of comment, combat that it does not make any sense to segregate forces, mm -hmm. right? And, um, but he... So when, by the nature of things that occur, um, uh, some of his other leaders, like uh, General Ruffner, um, integrate his forces, all men will go to the theater and order him to resegregate them, right? This is, this is during the Korean War, after the executive order. Yes, and, and um, then you have the other end of the spectrum, which, of course, is Ridgeway at the time. And so with the respect to integration issues, Ridgeway is a pretty much nuts and bolts guy. He wants the job done, and, and he does not see any reason for integration. He needs people to work together. He, he's got a specific goal, and as we talk about here, we, we, he's managing a lot of different things, a lot of changes in the way the American military postures itself, right? And... And he has this issue too, and and it is a process by which he says, basically, this is stupid, right? And, right. And and he does. He seeks approval. I mean, he just doesn't do anything. He uh, once he takes over, after MacArthur is fired, he basically um, seeks approval from uh, Marshall, and uh, he rubber stamps it very easily and says, yeah, this is perfect. 
So you, you bring up a, a very interesting kind of historical um, event, which is we have the executive order in 48, mm-hmm. and, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of foot dragging, and then there's war right. in, in 1950, and wars have a fantastic way of, of forcing people to do things they don't want to. Right. So it, is it then Korea, is it the, the needs of the Korean War that help accelerate the integration of the army, or is that kind of incidental? Uh, again, I would say I would argue both. There's there's an interesting dynamic right you know, within the Korean War too, because as you know, the 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 augmented Korean forces, the Katusas are there too, and in a lot of cases, they are treated far better than African American troops at the time, right? Within the African American movement as well, you have the larger issues of if you integrate, that means your Buffalo Soldier regiments go away, right? Now, on one hand. It's great, it's integration, but there's also the historical nature of what it means to the African-American movement, so there's kind of this push and pull on doing that. Yeah, you you lose some of your heroes and you make them just like everybody else. Right, Um, but through the rigors of the Korean affair, if you will, I mean, that is, it basically forces it. And like I said, this happens in the Far East first before they introduce it in Europe and then before it makes its way home. So what's this experience like for the soldier in Korea when when they are they know the, the executive order exists, but it's not necessarily being enforced, and then all of a sudden they're in at least a semi-integrated or even fully integrated unit. Uh, is there any kind of pushback? Do you see any kind of the continuation of the, the push to keep segregation in the United States, or is it more kind of accepting? Um, I think once you have senior leaders that push the issue, I think you see a lot of change. The interesting thing to me about the time is it gets at that kind of third area, if you will, when I was talking about this three-phase process for the African Americans in the military, um, which is going towards larger equality, which I'm not saying has happened, which indeed it probably has not happened, right? But so first gaining entrance, then fighting segregation, and then finding some semblance of equality, right? So so as segregation is being knocked down, then you can look towards greater equality. Now, this is the period emphatically where segregation is being knocked down, but there is definitely no equality in the military justice system, in recruitment policies, in um, job placement, um, what have you. And there's a very clear difference in the experience of African-American troops than there are. How about in the foxholes? When it actually comes down to it, you're in Korea, you're at the Chosen Reservoir. What's that experience like for the soldiers on the ground? So, no, emphatically, and indeed, and a lot of this theme comes out in, in all history of war, is that, you know, in foxholes, it's very much different than rear areas, which, of course, is exactly the theme that I kind of tackle in that book, is that um, survival is the main goal, and you don't necessarily care what person's background is or what they look like it's more about you providing security for each other right Um, then it gets different when you're back at base camps or when you're um, looking for promotions in the Korean War that was a big issue right you you just African Americans did not get the recognition they deserved for doing some of the same things that their counterparts did. And that's both ordinary and extraordinary recognition right so normal promotion and also things like medals. Right, promotion, um, and again, not to plug the almond bit, but uh, systematically going down and, and either not offering awards or stopping them in place or uh, putting them down a level. So if they, if they were going to get the 
um, the highest, it would be. Nice, so knock a Medal of Honor down to Silver Star yeah, or something like something that. something in that so case. The famous so Jesse Brown story, right? So his wingman gets the Medal of Honor. Jesse Brown gets the Distinguished Service Cross. Is it because of his race or is it because of the situation? These are things that you analyze in your research? Uh, to some extent. Um, the overall, perhaps injustice, if you will, so not just um, lack of requisite medals at the, at, the, at the right status, right, but also... Um, discrimination in and even being put up for the medals but also in promotions in job placement and more specifically the military justice system right because um, that's going to play out pro to some degree it probably still plays out but at the, at the bigger issues obviously during this period of integration I take a bigger look at the build up to Korea and in Vietnam where things manifestly change so let's let's drill down on that point a little bit. You say there's inequality in the military justice system. What what, what exactly do you mean by that? Um, well, Korean War was new to everybody, and you have instances where African American units were reported to flee from oncoming Korean troops, um, and systematically they were, as you know, during times of war. Desert, not desertion, uh, fleeing in the face of the enemy is a punishable by death. Mm -hmm. um, and white troops did the same thing, but in the case of African Americans, they disproportionately were put either on very hard, like 10-year um, um, hard labor duties or indeed put up to die. And there was a big case where um, Thurgood Marshall had to go out there and assess the situation, assess MacArthur, uh, assess how African Americans had been uh, mistreated in the military justice system and indeed then we get into the complexities of MacArthur himself um, I, I, MacArthur's a different animal altogether because I think that the common perception is, is that he just um, he didn't care about anything that didn't concern MacArthur so um, so it might be a stretch to say that he was I mean Thurgood Marshall found him wholly not helpful at all and uh, conceded, but I don't know that I would say that that's towards African Americans alone. I would put that towards everybody. Yeah, that's and just it, Douglas MacArthur. Right, and indeed he had his own little cabal. Right, I mean he was he was very much insulated by a couple of few officers. And it was it was it Almond who's one of his favorites. Yeah, yeah. Um, Almond by all rights um, probably should not have even been in command of after World War II. After World War II, right? Because uh, when he his his experience in Italy, I mean, he wholeheartedly is um, a failure in that sense, and normally that would spell the end of your career. But um, but he's MacArthur's right, boy, yeah. and and indeed he not only his boy, but I mean he pretty much manages all the other generals. Like they, he manages access to MacArthur, and then for some reason he's also handed Tenth Corps with no amphibious experience, and um, and in some ways. Superseding uh, higher-ranking generals for that part of operations, and so it's a very weird place in history. Yeah, and you highlight, I think, something that's very important when we talk about issues like this. I think it's tempting to look at this as we know American society is segregated and racist. We know that the military is still, in some ways, segregated and racist, but that's not all that's going on. And it's not as simple as flipping a switch. There's right. a whole lot of these different complicating factors that they have to work through to achieve equity. Sure. So I was say, like, what kind of sources did you use to get at all of this? Because it's such a, your research covers 
so many topics, so many aspects of racial integration. Do you look at like the green books from World War II? Do you look at official records? Do you look at court-martial records? What kind of sources did you use to really get at what's happening? So the short answer is all of those. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> all of the things? But uh, So in terms of government publications, of course, there's the uh, desegregation of the armed forces. That's a good starting point. Um, um, for a lot of the documents that would be at NARA there in Maryland with respect to Gillen Board Report. So all these bodies that are formed to assess if there is unequal opportunity. National right? Archives in College Park, Maryland. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and because I'm dealing largely with... Um, so I can get the context for stuff predating that, but for... Um, just prior to World War II, and indeed World War One forward, that's that's largely where it's going to be. Okay. Um, and then, of course, smaller projects like the Marine Corps uh, History Command. You you brought up several times that the, there's there's committees and panels and there's surveys being conducted. Sure. So, is the government investigating the existence and effects of segregation uh, in in kind of a good faith effort to undo them? Or something else going on with all these surveys? Um, I, I think I think yes, but I think that's can be construed as the opposite. Certainly, by the time you get to Korea, I mean they 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 organize a major uh, research project, Project Clear, right, where they go over to uh, interview people in forward units in Korea, and what that does is confirm practices that are already taking place. That that through combat in Korea, integration is taking place. Um, so it, it pretty much at that point is actually just uh, highlighting the validity of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. um, in cases before that, then, I think that they were actually trying to get at the heart of a problem, and I think what they wholeheartedly found out was that uh, this shouldn't be an issue. So now we, we're coming out of Korea, and you know it's the early 50s, the civil rights movement is really getting kicked off, we're about to have Brown versus Board, we're about to have the Montgomery bus boycotts. So it's, you know, it's 1953, 54, 55, we still have, we have a model, right, as you mentioned, the Far East forces in Korea, Japan, for, for integration to some degree, it's of course not perfect. Um, where do we go from here? Where, how, what happens to this uh, desegregation process coming out of Korea? You get more towards uh, discussions of not just discrimination, say, in service, but it goes like so when Kennedy reorganizes the Equal Opportunity Board, we're looking more at opportunities in terms of off-base housing, things like that. So in the, this is the early 60s? Yeah, 61, I believe. And then, um, and of course, <laughs> in his typical almond form, I think at that time he's long retired and he's uh, writing, I think, in so in the... Army War College, the archives that are there at uh, Carlisle. At Carlisle, right? They they have uh, multiple documents that he pins from his his uh, role as the one of the board members of the Alabama Life Insurance Company or what have you at the time to senators and congressmen, not only giving his opinions why uh, so why this is why the board should not be organized, but also providing his whole idea on how to resegregate the forces. And on the flip side of that, of course, we have kind of the holdouts like Almond, but we also have a, a, a dramatic incident in 1957 when Eisenhower uses 
I mean, essentially combat troops, right? The 101st Airborne Division to integrate Central High School in Little Rock. Right. So, so how how do these conflicting themes play out in this desegregation of the Army process? So I don't know that I would hang up too much. I mean, they're certainly big issues. I mean, the whole fact that an Army is used to in that function anyways is a whole animal of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, but with respect to the integration process in the military, you have a very big change between Korea and Vietnam. Okay. And that comes um, a lot of the African American soldiers that fight in Korea sign up again in Vietnam. At least um, from like Montfort Pointer perspective, like in the Marine Corps, you have people now that have fought in World War Two, Korea, and now Vietnam. What you get is a wholly different argument within the African American community. Because remember, now we have drafts. Mm-hmm. Now we have. Uh, Civil Rights Act. I mean, major social upheaval in the '60s. Mm-hmm. Um, so the draft is basically bringing in all social issues at home to the front. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a kind of a dichotomy between the older African American that still saw service in the military as a as a as a good thing, either as a step up or as um, just an opportunity, right? Albeit maybe not fair, but mm-hmm. or equal, but but an opportunity and a new draft age that was completely questioning of the system and um, even within that community the two can't understand each other which is in many ways a generation gap right because we have drafting from you know what is it 1939 through the end of Vietnam but as as you're saying it's there's a strong anti-draft movement in the 60s sure and 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 with the multiple protests that are going anti-war movements anti-draft uh, civil rights issues that are going on at home, every single issue filters to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, <laughs> so societal issues from home are now affecting not only Vietnam, but in you have rights in Kanawai Bay in Hawaii, you have rights in Vietnam, you have rights back at home in, uh, uh, at the Briggs in uh, North and South Carolina, you have um, the biggest one in Vietnam, of course, is the Long Bin Prison, right? Um, and again, based on unequal treatment or the fact that there are, is so much of a higher representation of African Americans that are winding up in Long Bend to begin with, and of course, then all the peelers or all the guards are whites, so it it just allows that tense situation to manifest even greater. Um, but I, but I think that um, that forces this is this is the time period where a lot of change happens now now. That is to say, though, that 68, of course, with the death of Martin, assassination of Martin Luther King, is, is a major flashpoint. Mm-hmm. So every riot that you see in the States does find its way over. And yeah, and, and for Americans not familiar with this, uh, after the King assassination is probably the single largest incidence of mass unrest in American history, where you have major riots in pretty much every major city in America. Right, and and in, in Vietnam, things kick off, and, and you have... So the interesting change, right, is is you have self-segregation. Mm-hmm. So these issues that we discuss about uh, being in combat or combat serving as a bringing together type function, that's great. It still happens. You okay. still need people to protect each other in forward units. But in, when they get back to the base camps or in major installations, you will find different races self-segregating into their little groups, I right? I was just going to ask that. I was like, what do you see actually in the jungles of Vietnam? Are they still helping each other, or do you see 
Are there any instances of fragging of white officers from black troops, or is it very much we will be brothers in combat, but once they return to the rare area, then it's where they kind of self-segregate and yeah, tension I, returns? Yeah, I, th- I think African Americans are still using scapegoats, and some that's readily abundant in the, in the high numbers that wind up in the brigs, but at the same time, there is that in the bush, there's survival, right? That That's fine. In 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 the rear, you have a segregation of people along many lines, mm-hmm. not only race, uh, preferred drug of choice, you know, you have your juicers in your heads. I mean, th- th- it is a completely separated, self-done mm-hmm. thing in Vietnam. And Which is something that's happening in the civil rights movement in America, right? Where yeah. you have a kind of break between the, the Martin Luther King path and the, the more radical, uh, even separatists, sure. groups like the Nation of Islam. Sure, and all that stuff manifests in Vietnam. You have issues over traditional military haircuts and afros. You mm-hmm. have uh, traditional African wear making it to the front, which is not conducive to traditional military practices. And then there's whole discussions or punishments based on that, um, mm-hmm. even down to greeting practices, the, the dap at the time, right? I mean, you know, hitting each other's fists rather than, you know, your traditional handshake or whatever, just, just in what is perhaps construed as an unmilitary or untraditionally military-like yeah, un- way to carry yourself. Right, yeah. Quotes. yeah. yeah. Um, so basically just f- trying to find more ways to differentiate between people. And indeed that carries over because we have things with McNamara and his Project 100,000, which of course lowers the bar for entrance exams. So you have a very big argument at the time since since then about whether or not disproportionately African Americans were in for forward units. Mm-hmm. And and in this case, it's almost a reverse of the situation we saw in the early 20th century yes. where black soldiers were relegated to service jobs. Now the argument in Vietnam is they're being pushed out to places where they're going to be killed. Right. And of course, they're better at it now. Magically, right. Right. Um, right. And so it's what it sounds like you're saying is the long-term trend is there may be steps towards integration, but we still have these kind of, um, they're not even necessarily glass barriers, but they're, they're pretty solid barriers that are built in new ways as the laws change. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, then we get into social issues, like, you know, the, the whole relegation of African Americans to Cat 4 and to infantry, basically, is, is based upon the fact that most of their institutions, most of their education is not on par with uh, whites or other races at the mm-hmm. time. So, of course, that's going to relegate them. So by then lowering the bar, you have the issues of perhaps more representation in the infantry, but in other places like the Navy, where perhaps there are more technically-minded jobs and you are in a very close proximity, you're going to have racial tensions explode in things like the riots on the Kitty Hawk and the Constellation, uh, where um people are seen to not possess the mental acuity to do these jobs, which of course are technical, mm-hmm. but Project 100,000 kind of, while McNamara champions that as a good thing, perhaps maybe not be. Yeah, and, and uh, for, for people who are unaware, Project 100,000, if I'm remembering correctly, is, a, is an effort essentially to lower the mental acuity uh, floor. And it brings in a lot of people that we may now recognize as being outright mentally ill or disabled or developmentally delayed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it basically just lowers the standards on that, that aptitude entrance exam so that people that were wholeheartedly marked off for military service are now um, 
mm-hmm. ushered in. And, and of course, then you get into different social aspects like they're filling these ranks with African Americans and then issuing deferments or or the National Guard units are getting mm-hmm. privileged white people from white backgrounds. But this is all need-based again, right? Because to fight Vietnam and to fight the Cold War? That's, that's how it's championed, yes. Um, um, but again, if you look at the social aspects of that, there are inherent problems with it, and they manifest in the riots that ensue. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's 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 uh, funny that the the need just happens to match up with the segregation of society. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's just fascinating because we're we keep talking about the same things. It was like whether we were in the American Civil War, whether we were in the Spanish American War, World War One, World War Two. We're seeing the same themes. Very cyclical. Very cyclical. Yeah. You brought up something that I think is worth talking about at least briefly, um, and and of course uh, American history tends to focus on the black American subaltern experience, but there are plenty of other subalterns. There are plenty of other racial subalterns, whether it's people of, of Hispanic descent or East Asian or you know pretty much any other group. There's also the gender subaltern. Sure. Um, so w- would you see the the black American soldier, uh, military member, engaging in what we would now call intersectionality across subaltern groups during this period? Um, would, or would you see this more as kind of a particularist um, push for equality, but not necessarily in an intersectional way? I think it's better looking at the African-American experience in the military as the first major movement and I think that everyone since is built upon that so um, I don't well I think the greater push just with respect to disadvantaged groups I mean even women right in the military at least there was some discussion of African Americans in civilian society and women working together that didn't necessarily happen all the time and then of course women were left out of things uh, in some form or fashion but um, I think the push for African-Americans and equality in the military was more geared towards them, and I think it has become then the paradigm, if you will, that uh, uh, Hispanic-Americans have, have then followed suit. Um, mm-hmm. Then you get in, there's certain nuances, right? I mean, we, we also have Puerto Rico, which is a wholly different instance. Which can be both, right? That's yeah. not interracial. Right, and then, of course, when you get to other groups like uh, Asians in the military, you have Filipinos, which, again, mm-hmm. is a different... Right, again, multiracial. together, yeah. Well, and, and the fact that as a U.S. protectorate, they had avenues into the system which make them different than other Asian groups, which causes further friction. Mm-hmm. So, But I, th- I think the better way to look at it is that it is the first step and, and it is the model with which subsequent groups use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think what you're getting at, and by way of conclusion, it, 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 and it sounds like what you're saying is that going through Vietnam, these issues still are very much outstanding. Sure. And, um, and it's it's going to have to wait till after Vietnam to, to really begin some of the, the settlement of them. Sure, and well, I mean the biggest one, obviously, in the all the development of the all volunteer force after Vietnam is of course the inclusion of women in the military, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can you can walk that forward for any subaltern group, if you will, or, or disadvantaged group, um, American Indian, mm-hmm. um, which who largely are probably not represented as they should be yet still. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yes, I would argue that equality does not exist still, but um, but there are certain pointed times where greater steps are made. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, Dr. Maxwell. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.